0: So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio. The best-selling author Catlin Moran has been married to her husband Pete for 25 years
1: now I've got to the age of 45 and I look around my female friends and each woman's career if she has children is exactly as big and successful as the willingness of her partner to support her and take on the childcare. It's like a direct correlation like the higher the women that I know are flying the more their husbands are doing. Very often women marry their glass ceilings and I was so lucky like literally every inch of success that I've got is directly correlated to how much Pete was willing to be an amazing parent and, you know, have whole years where he went, "Okay, I've got the house, I've got the kids, you go and work.
0: When Catelyn published her first book, How to Be a Woman, it turned into a complete global phenomenon. And that's when her husband Pete stepped back from his own successful career as a journalist to pick up the slack at home and raise their two daughters.
2: In most ways, it was pretty good for me because, to be honest you're the beneficiary of something that's quite unfair. You know, when you're one of the only dads at the school gates, you know, you end up getting a lot of attention and congratulations for something that even these days people just expect as standard from women. The sort of slight downside of it is growing up a man, you know, there are certain kind of areas of conditioning that, you know, you can't sort of shake off. So, you know, you do. there there is a little nagging voice in your head that sort of keeps saying you are what you were. I found anyway, that you do have to keep reminding yourself that just because you're suddenly not earning that much, what, what, what you do does sort of have a value.
0: Whose work is valued in a marriage is something we're talking about a lot in 2020. Who works, who takes care of the kids, who earns money, and who has to step back from their careers if something bad happens. These are all things that happen in the nitty gritty middle of a marriage. Catelyn's new book, More Than a Woman, focuses on that middle part of the marriage, the parts we don't usually see or talk about. I am actually recording this episode at the very beginning of the middle of my own marriage. Nick and I just celebrated our five-year anniversary. We are no longer newlyweds. We are now squarely in the middle of middle age, middle marriage. We need Catelyn Moran's book more than ever.
1: Whenever we talk about love, we talk about the sparks and the beginning of it and kind of, you know, the fire and the and, you know, the, the exciting start and getting to know each other. But that's just a, a second, that's a finger click compared to actually keeping a relationship going for the rest of your life. <laughs> and you start having to use these different muscles in your brain and in your heart in order to keep it going.
0: I'm Jo Piazza. This is Committed. start off by saying that there is no crisis in this episode nothing bad happens no one gets hurt no one gets sick this whole conversation is just watching two people live a life together for 25 years
2: do you want to start on this one
1: yeah well well, no you should start because you saw me first so you cited me you made you made ocular contact with me before i even knew you so go on tell Abbott.
2: That's right. Well, we both worked for the same music paper. There was a weekly music magazine called Melody Maker. We were fairly lo- lowly on the in the pecking order. But I noticed that they'd suddenly employed a really, really good, funny, young music writer in Birmingham. And my chances of getting work were suddenly kind of diminished, which was kind of annoying, but also in a really good way. She briefly had a column in The Observer. I enjoyed it so much that I kind of kept it and actually read it out to my ex-girlfriend over the phone. I thought it was so good. And my ex-girlfriend said... Hmm, I think you fancy her, don't you? And I was completely smitten with that piece of writing. You had a kind face. You had a yielding uh, countenance in your face. You mean, uh,
1: squashy. I had a fat face. If it would have yielded, had you pushed a finger into it, yes. But we
2: didn't sort of get together straight away, did we? We sort of... uh, Then we met, didn't we, by chance? Because I was interviewing a band called Levitation. And you were there as well, weren't you?
1: yeah. I missed my last train home and Pete was there and he said, you can come to sleep at my house if you want. And then we were on the tube on the way home and he went, before we get back to my house, I need to tell you a secret about me. And I was thinking, well, maybe it's that he's a sexual criminal. Okay, it doesn't matter. I still need somewhere to sleep tonight. I reckon I could fend him off. He's quite weak. He's wearing a cardigan. And he went, the big secret about me is... I love the band Crowded House, and their beautiful, uh, melodic adult-orientated rock was not cool at Melody Maker, and so we both had to keep it a secret. So I replied, I love Crowded House too. And in that moment, it seemed clear that we probably would marry at some point. So I went back to his flat. He gave me his nightgown. He had a Victorian nightgown. He lent me his toothbrush. And in the morning, he'd left. But he'd gone to the corner shop and brought me a croissant, which I'd never had before, and a little carton of fresh orange juice. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a classy life if I hang out with this dude. He brings me pastries and orange juice.
2: Uh, It was a brioche. I was for what it's worth it was a brioche but uh, the but more importantly I didn't have a, any hint of a of an idea that you were remotely interested in me so I slept on the sofa and you had the bed
1: yes it was all very chaste and virginal and also I'd lied about my age I told him I was 19 but I was actually 17 because I thought he'd be freaked out if he realized he was kind of harboring a child in his bed wearing his nightgown <laughs>
2: yeah, and you were right I would have been completely freaked out
1: Yeah. So on this basis of lies and pastry, we've built a 25-year relationship.
0: Pete was not a sexual criminal. He was just a music nerd in a nightgown who had excellent taste in pastries.
2: Well, we sort of briefly tried going out with each other for about three weeks. But pretty obvious that you were 17, you're about to move to London, you're about to take lots of drugs and enjoy all the benefits that London life had to offer. And I was
1: He means sleep with people in bands. I clearly just needed to go out and have some adventures. So he released me back into the wild like a bird or a pigeon and let me flap around for two years, having a series of terrible relationships with awful people. And in the end, I was stuck in a terrible relationship with an awful boy who wouldn't leave my flat. He just wouldn't go. And so Pete just turned up one day in his car because he was older than me and had a car and went, I'm going to remove this terrible person from your flat and I'm going to make him come and live with me so that he'll leave you alone. And so, so for the second time ever, he saved me. And it was around about that point, I started to have dreams where me and him were on an escalator on the London Underground, just traveling up and up and up and up. And I would keep saying to him in the dream, where are we going? It's taking a long time. And he just put his arm around me and went, it's OK. It doesn't matter. You're with me. You're safe. And then I woke up and went, oh, my God, I'm in love with Pete Perfides. And so I took him out for dinner two days later and, uh, and declared my feelings to Horton.
2: Although, little did you know, it was actually the escalator to nowhere in the famous monorail episode of The Simpsons.
1: And that's marriage, yes. (laughs) Yeah, you're just along for the ride, you never get there. There is no destination in marriage, you're just literally standing next to each other (laughs) until life ends.
0: (laughs) So Catelyn knew then that she wanted to be married to this funny, sensible, lovely man who would ride the escalator with her forever and ever. And they plodded along for a little bit until Catelyn told him he needed to propose to her.
1: He wasn't romantic. Like, there was one time where we went to the seaside to a beach, and I saw that he was down on the beach writing something in the sand. So I turned away coyly and waited for it to be revealed that he'd written, I love you, or Catelyn for Pete forever or something. And when I finally turned around and saw what he'd written in the sand in ten-foot-eye letters, it was the phrase fanny batter, uh, (laughs) Which is very rude and disgusting. And similarly, when I told him that we needed to get married and that he would need to propose to me, so he we went to a shop and bought a £20 ring. And then I was like, I'll give you the ring now and just propose to me at some point today when it's romantic. And he waited until the point where, again, we were on a beach and I was just doing a wee uh, on some sand because I couldn't find a toilet. And at that point, he went down at one knee and proposed to me. Yeah. So, uh, so, he, so although at the time I was annoyed that he, it wasn't all flowers and romance and stuff, what Pete was very insistent on from the beginning was just that we were going to be two mates who were doing funny things and there wouldn't be any kind of drama or romance. We were just going to sort of jog along in just a very funny, easy to maintain way so that there wouldn't be this feeling that there were two stages, the courtship, romance, marriage. And then you settle down into domesticity. We just settle down into domesticity from a very early stage, which I think was very sensible looking at. I
2: don't think I particularly planned it that way. I mean, and there are, hopefully there are moments of romance, but they just don't necessarily always ascribe to the the, the days in the calendar where
1: romance is supposed to happen. What, well, it's, it's what romance is, isn't it? Like you did the most romantic thing I think you've ever done last week, which was just a pure act of love. So we've been in lockdown here for months and all the swimming pools have been locked down and I just love to swim. And on the day the swimming pools reopened, I got a text from Pete saying, I've queued up and I've booked you the first available slot on the day that the swimming pool opens so you can go for a swim because I know you love it so much. And that to me is just the most romantic thing ever. Like to stand in a queue, it's a very British way of showing love, but stand in a queue in order to allow your your wife to go swimming. I was like, that's romance.
0: But that right there, that's romance. I love it because it shows that Pete was thinking about how to make Catelyn's life easier. And my personal love language is, what have you done to make my life easier today? And I don't think we talk about that enough. I said that to Pete. And we just don't give that kind of love enough credit.
2: Yeah, Janet Jackson got it right, didn't she? That was why What Have You Done For Me Lately was her first biggest hit, because these are sentiments to which we can all relate.
1: Well, similarly, massive attack when they sing love is a verb, love is a doing word. And from very early on, I just realised that exactly, it doesn't matter how many times someone says they love you, you have to, someone has to do love. Love is a thing that you do every day. It's not something you talk about. It's not a phrase. It's not a gift. It's a doing thing. Pete's a doer. Like he was almost late for this podcast because he insisted on making a curry from scratch for our daughter because she'd come home later than expected. You know, he's a doer. He does lovely things. He does love every day. Oh, bless you.
2: Thank you. What well, you do as well? I mean, hopefully we both do, without wanting to kind of make anyone listening to this throw up. You try not to be a demonstrably worse person than you were the day before.
1: We sound so British now.
0: So British. And with that, a quick break. Cheerio. Sorry, that was... I'm terrible. Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. we're here to talk about the middle parts of a marriage. I do have to back up just a little bit to get back to Pete and Catlin's wedding. I'm doing it because the way they tell the story is a goddamn delight.
1: Well, we wanted to get married in a pub and just then just have some mates sort of come over and dance to our indie records. The Pete's family are Greek and they wanted a more kind of formal wedding.
2: The period leading up to us getting married required a lot of delicate stage managing because my parents are Greek and Greek Cypriot, very traditional. And Catlin's parents, very sort of countercultural hippies. They learnt everything they knew about raising a family from Crosby, Stills, Nash and
1: Young. Not even that. They learnt everything about parenting from salmon spawning. They had eight children, spawned gigantically, and then just swam away and left the eggs to fend for themselves. They were, they were very hands off. <laughs> Whereas your parents are very hands on.
2: Ideally, they would have liked to have had a traditional Greek wedding in a Greek Orthodox church. The reception with Greek music playing, where kind of distant relatives kind of come up onto the dance floor when you're doing the first dance and pin banknotes onto the bride and groom's clothes. And that sounded like the worst day ever to me. It was just mortifying. We managed to find a hotel that used to be a converted abbey, so it looked and felt a bit like a church. And so that was where we had the wedding. And we basically, we came up with the table plan. And we had a table plan whereby my family and Callie's family were basically seated at opposite ends of the room. And we had just sort of basically tried to distract them for six hours so that, that members of their family wouldn't meet members of my family.
1: Which was for the best. My dad, who turned up in a suit that he'd stolen, uh, tried to light a cigarette from a candle and poured molten wax all down his shirt. And so then a waitress took the shirt off him to go and put it in a freezer to chip the wax off. So he just sat around topless and drunk for most of the wedding. My mum had never encountered the cocktail White Russians before and experimented with them quite heavily and ended up having a row with every single other member of my family. My cousin squeezed my arse and tried to get off with me, and then my sister stole a golf buggy and drove it into a lake. It was advisable that they not meet at any point. We were like, this is the last time you guys will ever be in a room together. After this, it's very much separate.
2: (laughs) My my father was so exasperated by my insistence on um, trying to ensure that my parents never met her parents. That he took matters into his own hands and kind of found out where Catelyn's parents lived or, on a map. Unbeknownst to me, he drove to their house. And when he got there, Catelyn's dad.
1: My dad answered the door in a pink dressing gown. Pete's dad went, Hello, I'm, I'm Pete's dad, and put his hand out for my dad to shake it. And my dad went, Oh, I won't shake your hand, love, because uh, I've just had a piss. and uh, And it kind of got worse from there, really. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't know if other people have kind of post-wedding come downs or like kind of feel like sort of, I don't know, everything's over or everything's different, but it just felt completely the same to us. Like we just carried on. We got this kind of big, sunshiny flat in North London that we decorated to look like it was I don't know, the set of a children's TV entertainment program. It was very colorful. And we just used to sit around and listen to records, and it was just exactly the same as it was before. We were just – it's really not changed since day one. We're just very, very comfortable with each other. Uh, Once the only big alteration that happened in our relationship as a result of getting to know each other is it took me about – Four weeks to feel comfortable breaking wind in front of Pete. Um, so for the first four weeks, I I would often pretend that I would, had to go and answer the phone or send an important email, but it was just simply that I had to go into another room and fart and then come back.
2: And then I guess the other change was having we we had children. That was a big change, wasn't it?
1: Before you have kids, I don't think you can have any conception of how long it takes to raise children. In your brain, literally, you haven't grown the synapses. You're not old enough to understand how long it takes to raise a child from an egg to an adult that can get in a car and drive off. So yeah, it's that phase of your life where you're like, man, this is long. And there's one bit in the book where I go, if this entire book was the word long, with like there being 85,000 O's, that's still not even one 27th of the amount of time you're going to spend parenting. It's you're really in it for the long haul. It's a massive marathon. It's an endurance test. I would have moved anywhere to get help with childcare. We didn't have any people still working at the office. And I've always worked from home. I had a very difficult birth. I was very ill afterwards. It was a, a three-day Fandango in which kind of everything was broken and torn and never really was the same again. So yeah, so I'd be at home with the baby and then Pete would come home and in order for me to do my work, he would put the baby in a sling and just walk round and round for hours. She was a very colicky baby, so you just had to keep moving with her. And I would I'd take her out of the sling and bits of popcorn would fall off her head because Pete would go, you'd walk to the cinema, wouldn't you? And like go to the foyer and just like get a bag of popcorn and then just walk around eating the popcorn whilst carrying the child.
2: Sometimes it was sesame seeds, remember?
1: Yeah, if you'd been to McDonald's and got a Big Mac, it would be sesame seeds. I could guess where he got his like walking baby snack from that day, judging by what was on our head. Once a chip fell out, that was exciting. And then for the rest of the time when I had to work, thankfully my tits were so ruined by motherhood that I could kind of, they were long and flexible like a hose and I could kind of dogleg them round and breastfeed her on my lap whilst I kind of typed over her head on my laptop. That's always one good thing about your tits being ruined by breastfeeding, that they become flexible and you can kind of put them wherever you need them. They're they're extendable. It's like go-go gadget tits. You can put them wherever you need
0: them. (laughs) And then Pete left his office job when their daughter was about a year old.
2: That kind of meant that you could do more and I could do
1: less. (laughs) I mean, the thing is now when you look back at it, kind of like our oldest is 19 years old, You can't remember how you did it. But I remember at the time thinking, I don't know how I'm doing this at the end of every day, because you'd go, what have you done today? And the answer would be very little, but it seemed to take up all of the available time. So it was just the usual juggling act of like kind of, someone would literally hold the baby for 20 minutes while someone else did some work, and then you'd pass it back. But, you know, it gradually gets better and better. I remember the big, you know you get given those developmental milestone books where you're supposed to write down baby's first tooth, baby's first word. Obviously, we were too busy to do any of that. And the only thing that I wrote down in that book was that at exactly six months, Dora sat and watched all of Teletubbies on her own on the sofa while I went to the toilet. And that was a very key developmental milestone. As soon as they can watch TV on their own, you're kind of, kind of you're over the hump.
2: (laughs) When they get a bit older, you can't quite remember how it was that three hours of of you needing the toilet could elapse. And for three hours, you just simply couldn't get as far as the toilet, even though you needed to. But I I definitely remember it happening. I remember sort of looking at my watch and thinking, it's 5.30 now. I can remember kind of wanting to go at 2.30. As much as anything, that's what kind of brings me back to it.
1: Oh, there were poos that I did over two or three days, like a part works. Like, it was almost like they were serialised. Like, kind of, I would start it and do the first plop on Monday, and then I wouldn't be able to do the second one until Tuesday night. Like, kind of, some of those went on for a week. It was... uh... (laughs) Now, thankfully, I can poo. That was around about the time that I realised... So my feminism started to really rear up at this point because I started to realise that so much of what in the world we see must have been created by women. Like for instance, I became convinced that women must have invented music and song because if you need to leave the baby on the bed to go to the toilet, you sing so that the baby knows you're still around while you're on the toilet. And I'm absolutely convinced women must have invented singing tens of thousands of years ago as cave women so that they could go outside the cave and have a poo and sing to the baby so that it knew that it was safe. So that was that was definitely the start of my feminism was just looking at the world through a mother's tired eyes going, wow, look at all the things we must have invented just to be able to deal with this massive bag of bullshit that is having a small child.
0: So while Catelyn is carrying around this massive bag of bullshit that is having a small child, she also starts writing a book.
2: Well, I'm still staggered by it was just how quickly that she wrote it because she had a job at the, the Times newspaper and on top of this, she, she was writing the book in these kind of manic bursts whenever she could
1: that's the joy of having kids because if you've had to spend like four years breastfeeding and sitting on a chair literally not being able to do everything you finally realize for the first time in your life exactly how long a minute is and half an hour is and an hour is and you're like the minute I don't have to do this anymore I will never waste a minute or an hour again I know how much I could do so I've been writing the book in my head And I was just so lucky, like kind of, you know, it's, you know, semi-ironic that a book about feminism could not have existed without a man, my husband, because I just would not have been able to write the book. He just took all the childcare on for the five months while I was writing it. And, you know, I didn't waste a second of it because I was very aware every second I was in front of that laptop, he was with two small children under the age of five. (laughs) I really needed to honour that sacrifice.
0: (laughs) Pete no longer worked in an office, but he did have a job, a big job. He was the chief rock critic for the Times of London. But then when Catlin finished her book, he turned in his resignation.
2: She finished the first draft, on the, I think, on the week that I handed in my notice. And so a week later, she handed me the book. I just went to a cafe about two miles away and just spent the day there, just reading the book on photocopied sheets of paper, just to, to see what it was. I felt like I was just reading like a future masterpiece. It was so exciting, and, and I just couldn't wait for other people, you know, for the rest of the world to read it. I was just so proud. And I thought, OK, well, I hope other people like it as much as I like it, because if they don't, then it was a really bad idea to leave my job last week because <laughs> we're screwed. <laughs> but um, thankfully, other people did
1: like it. Yeah, you resigned on the day that I finished the book. That was kind of like I, I rang up and went, I finished it. And you went, cool, I'm going to resign. And we were like, I hope this works. And thankfully it did.
0: I slightly, I kind of asked your permission. Yeah. Pete made the right decision. How to Be a Woman was a crazy-ass success. It was an instant bestseller and went on to sell nearly half a million copies in 16 countries.
1: Now, you'd open up the paper and there'd be a picture of Kate Moss on holiday, topless, smoking a fag, drinking a glass of champagne, and reading the book. You know, I'd go and interview Lady Gaga and she'd just be like, I love your book. So it was all quite weird, but it was, I hadn't realized at that point that if people start offering you loads of brilliant things, that you actually then have to do them once you sign the contract. So within six months of the book coming out, I was doing promo all over the world. I'd been offered and started writing a sitcom. I'd been offered and started writing a movie. I was still writing three columns a week for Times. I'd started work on a sequel. And it was just manic. I mean, I think I was in quite a manic state for a couple of years, and it took me about five years to work through all the contracts that I'd signed in that kind of giddy first six months. And again, Pete was just amazing. Every weekend, every school holiday, he would just have to go off with the kids because I was working seven-day weeks. And I just sort of sadly watch them leave the house to go and have like a nice time in the park or go to the seaside. And I'd just be sitting out in the garden, chain smoking over my laptop, just going, I'll see you in five years, kids. (laughs) Mummy's being a phenomenon right now. I'm so sorry. And then, as is the irony of these things, when I did finally finish all the contracts, there was a day where I finished it all and I was like, "Mummy's free. I walked into the front room like some kind of superstar, like, Mummy's free. I'm here now, kids. I know you've been waiting to see me. Let's have some fun. And they both suddenly turned into teenagers and they were like, Yeah, we're going out now. We're going to see our mates. (laughs) So I did miss a fair chunk of their childhood, but Pete took lots of pictures of it and it looked like it was nice, but I was not there for it.
0: (laughs) This is when Pete became the man behind the woman the one who took care of most of the childcare duties.
1: In
2: most ways, it was pretty good for me because to be honest, you're the beneficiary of something that's quite unfair. You know, when you're one of the only dads at the school gates, you know, you end up getting a lot of attention and congratulations for something that even these days people just expect as standard from women. The like slight downside of it is, you know, growing a, a man, you know, there are certain kind of areas of conditioning that you can't sort of shake off. So there is a little nagging voice that sort of keeps saying you are what you earn. Just as for women, it's hard to sort of supplant the idea that unpaid work you do has got no value when we all know that it, the value it has to, in all sorts of ways and to the economy as well is incalculable. As a guy, you, you do have to keep reminding yourself that just because you're suddenly not earning that much, what you do does sort of have a value.
1: Well, I was just going to say, it is a sad truth. Like now I've got to the age of 45 and I look around my female friends and each woman's career, if she has children, is exactly as big and successful as the willingness of her partner to support her and take on the childcare. It's like a direct correlation. Like the higher the women that I know are flying, the more their husbands are doing. And there's a bit in the new book, More Than a Woman, where I just say that very often women marry their glass ceilings And I can look around my social group and absolutely see that. And I was so lucky, like literally every inch of success that I've got is directly correlated to how much Pete was willing to be an amazing parent and, you know, have whole years where he went, "Okay, I've got the house, I've got the kids, you go and work. And I know how hard that was for him. But, you know, I'm so grateful that he did.
2: As a guy, you know, I sort of think it just in a very basic, practical way, It heightens your empathy for what, you know, women naturally have to go through to have that uncertainty about whether or not you'll be able to pick up on your career once the years when your kids are really young and you're sort of doing a lot of the sort of childcare. Because for obviously, you know, women don't need me to tell them it's hard to regain that momentum. If you've had to take years out to raise a small child, it's hard to regain that momentum in your career. So if you're sort of going through a version of the same thing as a guy, then that's not a bad thing because that's just a normal thing that so many millions and millions of women have to go through.
0: Like I said in the beginning, we don't talk enough about the middle of a marriage. We don't talk about the things that keep a long-term relationship going, except for date night. Everyone tells you to go on a date night, and that's not enough. Anyone who's been on a date night ends date night and they're like, um, eh, "It was fine, but what else are we going to do?" Caitlin talks a lot about what it takes to keep a marriage strong. And one of the things that stuck with me was the idea of a maintenance shag.
1: It's hard, especially if you've got little kids, to spontaneously have sex. And if you leave it too long in between having sex, you just kind of forget how to do it. Like everything seals up down there. And just the idea of it seems ridiculous. You're kind of like, (laughs) we used to do what? You used to say what? But my mate Sally, she was so firm about this. She was like, "You have to schedule sex. You have to make sure you're doing. It. You can't let it go for like more than two weeks tops without doing it. It will start seem like a ridiculous dream that weird people did. It seems like a clown's activity. So you've just got to schedule the maintenance shag. And even though in the first couple of minutes you'll both feel quite silly and be like, oh, you know, after ten minutes you'll both be into it. So it's just acknowledging the fact you just have to go to bed and do that sex." <laughs> And then you will start enjoying it. And then you tend to find once you've had the maintenance shag, you then want to have spontaneous shags in the days after. You know, it just kind of wakens all that up again. You know, you need to have that conspiratorial sense between each other as the two grown ups in the house. You know, you need to be, while well, one of you is unblocking the dishwasher and the other one's like removing a dead mouse from under the refrigerator, you need to be able to like turn around and twinkle at each other a bit and be like, yeah, remember what we were doing two hours ago? That was grown up. <laughs> I think one thing that I've, been re- that I've really loved in recent years in popular culture, there's been a generation of female writers and comedians who have really extolled the virtues of really quite boring vanilla sex. Because in the era that I grew up in the 90s and until very recently, kind of the whole idea of sex, particularly for women, was that it had to be as freaky as possible. And you had to be like whipping each other and doing role play and, you know, anal sex. You know, you needed to be doing all this stuff. And Amy Schumer and the Broad City Girls have been very good at just going, nope, you could just have a very regular missionary 10-minute thing, and that's good enough. You know, if a man is tired of fanny, he is tired of life. That is enough. You don't need to experiment. And I, I go through all the things that I advise you don't bother doing, like role play, unless one of you is a genuinely brilliant character actor. If you suggest that you play a game where one of you is a sexy pirate, it can just collapse in an absolute horror show of someone doing a very inconvincing pirate act, accent, uh, sort of like the other one going, I need to tell you what your motivation is in this scene. Uh, the costume's going wrong. You just don't need to be sexy pirates. It's okay. Just have a normal shag.
0: A very normal vanilla shag is a great place to take a break and to maybe schedule a calendar invite to have a super normal shag with your partner. wow. <laughs> So pre-order The Sicilian Inheritance today. I promise you it's going to be your new favorite book. Last March, Pete published his first book, a memoir called Broken Greek.
1: And I feel like we understand each other more. When I would really complain about writing a book and about how constantly stressed and anxious I was and how horrible it was to write a book you'd be understanding but but you didn't understand just how all-consumingly terrible it is like dragging a bag of shit around forever it obsesses your every waking moment
2: I didn't really quite understand that in the same way that I understand it now and I've really enjoyed being able to have conversations with Kate where I kind of know how that feels now
1: yeah, and it means we can both sympathise with each other about reviewers just going, even if you've had a good review, just going, and in that sentence, they completely misunderstood what I was trying to do. They're bastards. Because no one else would understand that. They'd be like, but it was a good review. And you'd be like, but they got a fact wrong. So we now finally understand each other's peevishness about these things.
2: <laughs> it's all been a bit of a novelty to me because obviously this is my first time sort of doing it. And people have been very kind in the reviews and it looks like it's going to be adapted for television. I've got to say, my experiences of wholly being completely great so far. And it's so much so that I'm considering retiring now and n- never doing anything again. I'm just going to drive an Uber car for the rest of my life now. So quite um, while I'm ahead.
0: <laughs> Another thing that Catelyn has discovered in middle age and in the middle of her marriage is something that is really hard for a lot of us women. It's that sometimes the only solution is just asking for help
1: instead of going around with a to-do list in my head and being really angry that people couldn't psychically tell what I was thinking about, I simply need to get a whiteboard, put it up in the kitchen and write down the jobs that I think need doing. And then Pete would do them or the kids would do them. But I thought it was this massive life crisis and that people would either have to be psychic to know what was going on in my head or we, or we just have to reinvent our lives from scratch. And it was simply writing a list and pinning it up in the kitchen. So thank you again, Pete, for being really patient during what I thought was nervous breakdown. <laughs>
2: It's not like these moments that weren't complete, you know, they weren't, you didn't imagine them, you know. So it has sort of encouraged me to notice slightly earlier when the windows need to be cleaned. Whereas possibly if left to mine devices, I'd end up living in just kind of opaque window. Is it opaque? Is that the right word? Yeah, opaque windows that you can't see through and cannot even be kind of penetrated by daylight. It wasn't without its uses. I certainly clean the windows a lot more than I used to.
1: It's meant that after 45 years of basically being a martyr, I have been able to climb down off that burning pyre and stop being a martyr and just go, I need other people to help me. And they have. And I just wish I'd asked 20 years earlier. That's been the beautiful release of middle age, just that my anger allowed me to just go around and ask for help. And I was given it. I'm enjoying not being a martyr anymore. It's very pleasant. I'm not bitter anymore. I'm a happy lady.
2: (laughs) Also, it all balances out in a way as well because the the, the magical thing that happens to a lot of men just as women become perimenopausal is that men become less gladiatorial, they less combative. I think a lot of men I noticed certainly in, in their 20s and I think to a degree this is true of me is that you are sort of more competitive and you have a certain, certainly speaking for myself, I don't really want to speak for anyone else, but for speaking for myself, I had a sense that if I didn't sort of get on some kind of, you know, make some kind of progress in my career in my 20s, then I'd lose the opportunity sort of forever. So I think that made me slightly more kind of combative. Now, you know, my, my children are advancing towards 20. I've done sort of things in my own career that I didn't sort of think I'd get a chance to do And for whatever reason, I feel like I've got less anger. I'm less combative than I used to be. So this is probably the best time ever for Kate to be perimenopausal because uh, I'm in a slightly more stoned state than I ever was at any other point in my life. Maybe evolution has planned it this way. Who knows?
1: And whenever we talk about love, we talk about the sparks and the beginning of it and kind of you know the fire and the, and, you know, the, the exciting start and getting to know each other. But that's just a, a second, that's a finger click compared to actually keeping a relationship going for the rest of your life. And you start having to use these different muscles in your brain and in your heart in order to keep it going.
2: Sort of saying to people, young people who are sort of in the throes of romance, which is the age old question how do I know it's the one? And my slightly downcast answer is if you can imagine them being half as nice as they are now, 30 years later, but you still love the idea of being that person for the rest of your life, then they're probably the one for you because. In many instances, and I really hope I'm not an example of this, but it's not for me to say, husbands do tend to end up being about half, about half as nice as, than they were the year they married I suppose. That's a bit depressing.
1: <laughs> Whereas I always say when young people want romance advice, or even if they don't want romance advice, and I'm just going to give it to them, I, and they say, how do you know it's the one? And I always say, it's the smell. When you smell someone and they just, they smell so good, and you just, you inhale them like a big joint, and then you feel very relaxed... That's what love is. Love is feeling very, very relaxed with someone. Silly. If you're making silly noises, if you're giggling and kind of using silly words like silliness and relaxation, I think for me, are the signs that you have a good one.
2: Yeah, and the mundane things are really exciting, like some kind of slightly trashy program that that you kind of like to watch together and you don't even know if anyone else would particularly understand if you told them about it perhaps something like that whilst ordering a takeout
1: that's as good as it gets i like going around the supermarket with you and picking up vegetables and pretending that they're talking to you going please don't eat me or i would like to be eaten that's good for me
2: (laughs) you can tell she doesn't go to the supermarket much don't you because it's like a drug experience you can go so rarely it's like a hallucinatory experience when you do go
1: I did move my husband very early on by not learning to drive. So he's had to do all the school runs and all the shopping for the last 25 years. And uh, that, that for me is one of the reasons I'm content in this marriage. I haven't had to do any of that. It's marvelous.
3: This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. A special thanks to Catlin Moran and Pete Pafidis. It was produced and edited by Ramsey Yunt and Dylan Fagan. Mixing by Ramsey Yunt. Catlin's new book, More Than a Woman, is available wherever books are sold. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's j o at committedpodcast.com. You can grab a copy of Joe's book, How to Be Married, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Hey guys, Joe here. This episode of Committed is brought to you by my brand new novel, The Sicilian Inheritance. This is honestly the best book that I've ever written. I love it so much. The Sicilian Inheritance is a twisty-turny family murder mystery set on the beautiful and sometimes dangerous island of Sicily. And it's incredibly personal. It's loosely based on the real-life murder of my great-great-grandmother, Lorenza Marsala. The Sicilian Inheritance comes out on April 2nd, but it is available for pre-order right now wherever you get your books.